G'day mate, 40 here. That was embarrassing. Uh, my last stream crashed, but we're back. Hope to get uh, Elliot Blatt back with us. So I think it's about time I get a new computer. My Corsair, I think I spent about uh, $2,200 on five years ago. I think it may be approaching its uh, end limit date, but I'm not gonna pull it Jason Kessler where I will uh, leave public life if you don't buy me a new computer. I have the funds to buy myself a new computer and I plan to in the weeks ahead. So I think if you get five years from a computer, that's a reason to feel gratitude. So what the heck? Do you guys know Andrew Huberman? All right, he is a professor at Stanford who also peddles a lot of crap on YouTube and other places. Uh, here's a comic deconstruction. Ever since I started listening to Andrew Huberman, my life has changed for the better. The Hubes taught me that it's all about your morning routine. I immediately take a cold shower. I follow that up with a blender full of water without breathing. See, breathing that early in the morning is actually bad because it downregulates your body's receptors that it needs to be neurally activated. Then I go outside and I stare directly at the sun for at least 45 minutes. Then I do some grounding by touching my bare feet to the dirt and my nipples and my bare penis. By touching your bare body to the, to the earth, you're actually recharging your lymphatic drainage system to be able to drainage lymphatically even more than it was before. Did you know that the human penis can go your entire lifetime without ever making contact with the earth? After that, I take another cold shower and I tell at least 19 more people about it. I take cold showers. I follow that with an eight ball of athletic greens. Sure, it's more expensive, but it's three times more bioavailable than the leading cocaine. Then I spend about an hour physically assaulting myself. It helps keep my dopamine levels low so that I can stay grounded. Around this time in my morning routine, I do my darkness retreat. I love lock myself in my closet for up to 45 minutes. Because when you deprive your body of its basic senses, you activate the metabolic catatonic cannibalistic frolic lymphatic system, which in turn expands the pipelines through which your mechanisms have the ability to function and science works. Okay, that's pretty awesome. I think pretty pretty fair analysis of uh, what's, what's going on with Andrew Jewison. Ever since I started listening to Andrew Huberman, my life has changed for the better. The Hubes taught me that it's all about your... Okay, again, a little media buzz. Ahead, George Santos versus the media mob as he is indicted for fraud. The first 24 minutes of the CNN event was spent on two of Donald Trump's recurring subjects, the 2020 election and the Capitol riot, and that ensured a clash from the start. It was not a rigged election. It was not a stolen election. Can you publicly acknowledge that you did lose the 2020 election? Let me, let me just go on. If you look at True the Vote, they found millions of votes on camera, on government cameras, where uh, they were stuffing ballot boxes. I have on to camera. stop you there because, because there is no evidence of that. Your own election officials testified to that. You have the Presidential Records Act. I was there and I took what I took and it gets declassified. Uh, Biden, on the other hand, he has 1,850 boxes. He had boxes is sent to Chinatown, Chinatown, where they don't speak even English in that Chinatown we're talking about. Can I, I, I got to stop you right there. I would like for you to answer the okay, question. Okay, it's very simple to That's answer. That's why I asked it. It's very simple to, you're a nasty person, I'll tell you. <laughs> and CNN's own post-game show grappled with what had just happened. Mr. Trump's first lie was told just seconds into the night with his false familiar claim that the 2020 election was, quote, a rigged election. And the falsehoods kept coming fast and furious. 
Joining us now to analyze the coverage, Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason Magazine. And in Chicago, Amisha Cross, political analyst for Sirius XM and WVON. Robbie, it was unwatchable at times. Did CNN underestimate the challenge of fact-checking Donald Trump in real time as he steamrolled Caitlin Collins, a sharp and poised but relatively young journalist? I think you can criticize the format uh, to the end of the day. Uh, the fact the audience was Trump, people who like Trump, yeah. Trump sympathetic, moderates and conservatives. So they didn't agree with the kind of questions she was asking. Those are not things they, the audience wanted to hear from the moderator. So it was a very weird juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to criticize that. However, the criticism we were hearing from AOC, from MSNBC, is the idea of doing it at all, right. which to me is, is crazy. Look, he's going to speak. He's running for president, whether right. you like it or not. Right. You can't shut him down. You can't keep him out of the dialogue. So that kind of criticism that this was dangerous, that this was, uh, AOC almost suggested it was like re-traumatizing sexual assault victims <laughs> given the E. Jean Carroll verdict. verdict. To me, that makes no sense. That's just not living in reality. He's going to speak, and it's the job of journalists to talk to him. Yeah, that's why I led with it, because it seems to me that we've got a year and a half of this to go in the campaign. And, you know, yeah, I'm not a big fan of uh, trying to fact check uh, people in, in real time. I, I think that's just awkward. I mean, where else do you do you see that happen? Right? I, I don't think it happens that, that she much. attempted to fact check, but she lost control of that room very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump had an agenda and his agenda was to go there. It was to reinvigorate that the 2020 election was stolen. It was to deny uh, E. Jean Carroll that anything happened, that he even knew that woman, even though we heard what happened just mm -hmm. the day before I actually pinned a, an op-ed in Newsweek in, in the wake of that. And I think that at the end of the day, Donald Trump did what he wanted to do, but so did CNN. CNN's main goal here was to be a ratings juggernaut. Or not, and they used Donald Trump to get that. Donald Trump's right. main thing was to keep saying what he's been saying over and over again. 2020 election was stolen, that he's basically not guilty of anything anywhere, right. and, you know, throw out some barbs of, that are just patently untrue yeah. about abortion rights and other things. It was very frustrating to watch. Well, Trump came with um, a, a piece of paper in his pocket about the timeline of January 6th, so he was prepared on that. Now, um, everybody remembers January 6th. There was these chants of hang Mike Pence, and there was a gallows erected outside the Capitol during that riot. So Caitlin Collins asked the former president, uh, this, Mike Pence says you put him in danger. Roll it. I don't do think he feel, was in any danger. Mr. President, do you feel that you owe him an apology? No, because he did something wrong. And, Robbie, the wrong thing is that he didn't overturn the results of the Electoral College. Um, Collins, as we all seem to agree, was in a tough position, but she's not there to debate him. But it looked that way, especially with the crowd, the pro-Trump crowd, you know, hooting and hollering uh, whenever he made a point that they liked. Right. I mean, look, she's not a conservative. I guess she kind of got slotted into this. Oh, because she worked for the Daily Caller a million yeah. years ago. But she's, you know, we know there are never Trump people who were once conservatives on cable news who just sure. don't fit that anymore. That's her. If you had someone who actually understood where Trump's coming from and what his audience thinks, you could have pressed him even harshly on some of the things he said. He pointed to, you know, when he said the election was rigged, he then said it's because the Twitter files revealed this pressure and what right. social media had done and the federal government was doing part of that. If you know more about his perspective, you could have pushed back and said, but those were your agencies. You were the president. You were in charge of all these people. You're saying the deep state is out to get you. Why didn't you rein it in? Why yeah. didn't you do the things you said you were right. going to do? But she doesn't understand. And I think, that's, I think that's something to ask him. That's what I'd ask him. Well, she but covered she doesn't the, know she, that. She covered the Trump White House. Apparently, the former president was comfortable with her. I don't know if he would have done it with some of the CNN's. Yeah, so try to fact check, I guess, in real time doesn't really make for a riveting show. It was kind of weird.
the way it went down on CNN. All right, let's get back to this terrific Rick Paulstein essay back from 2012 about the long con, putting the con in conservatism. So the con of selling 23-cent miracle cures for heart disease, right, inches inexorably into the con that selling minuscule marginal tax rates is the miracle cure for the nation itself. The proof is in the pictures, the commons, in which the ideological and the transactional share the exact same vocabulary, moral claims, and cast of heroes and villains. So I'm generally right-wing, generally far more sympathetic to the conservative perspective than the liberal one, but often I have to hand it to the left and go, oh, this is, you know, there's some thoughtful critique here of what's going on in right-wing media. Dear fellow conservative, you know which special interest has given more money to the Obama and Clinton campaigns than any other? If you guess trial lawyers, well, that's too easy. But can you guess which special interest came in second? Labor unions? No. The Green Lobby? No. AARP? No. NEA? Yet? Give up? Okay, here's the answer. Wall Street. That's right. According to CNN, Wall Street securities and investment firms have given over $35 million to Democratic candidates this election cycle. You've been wondering why the financial industry has been in meltdown, taking your 401k investment portfolio down with it. Now you know. Let's face it. The former frat boys who populate Wall Street today understand economics as about as well as the pinko professors whose courses they store through. I mean, remember when Silicon Valley Bank went broke and right-wing media was just so invested in blaming the demise of the bank on its uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. And those initiatives may have played a role in the fall of the bank. I don't think you can seriously argue they were the main reason. So trusting these Wall Street frat bros with your money is like trusting Bill Clinton to babysit your underage niece. But I know someone you can trust to manage your investments. His name is Dr. Mark Skusen. That's doctor, as in PhD in economics. Right, for the past 28 years, subscribers to his investment newsletter, forecasts, and strategies have profited enormously from his uncanny ability to predict major market trends before they happen. So this letter is signed by Anne Corter, and truth be told, it reads like she wrote it. It is a perfect portrait of the nether region of the right-wing con. You got figure. Politics, trading places with ground, commerce, a dizzying dozen times over in the space of just these several paragraphs. There is the bizarre linguistic operation that turns liberal, pinko, into a merely opportunistic synonym for stuff you don't like. There's the sloganeering alchemy that conflates political and economical magical thinking. Freedom! There's the shorthand invocation of Reagan hagiography. And then presto, the suggestible readers on the receiving end of quarters come on, meant to realize that they are holding the abracadabra solution to every human dilemma. Vote out the Democrats and subscribe to Mark Skusen's newsletter for investors while you're at it. So there's a kind of mystic wingnut great circle of life aura to this stuff. So Mark Skusen, a Mormon, is the nephew of W. Cleon Skusen, author of the legendarily bizarre John Birch tract The Naked Communist, which claimed to have exposed the secret 45-point plan by which the Soviet Union hoped to take over the United States government. Among the sinister aims laid out in this document, gain control of all student newspapers, eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings, and substitute shapeless, awkward, and meaningless forms. So upon its publication in 1958, the president of the Church of Latter-day Saints recommended that all members read it. Mark Skusen is also the author of a book called Investing in One Lesson, which cribs its title from the libertarian tract Economics in One Lesson, distributed free by conservative organizations in the millions 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Ronald Reagan was a big fan. He also founded an annual Las Vegas convention called Freedom Fest. 2012 keynote speakers included Steve Forbes, Grover Norquist, Charles Murray, 
Whole Foods CEO John Mackey, right? Bills itself as the world's largest gathering of right-wing minds. So here's another signal facet of the conservative movement's long con, convincing its acolytes that they are the true intellectuals, that anyone to their left is the mere cognitive pretender. Will this three-minute video change your life? You can read on Freedom Fest website. Because three-minute videos are exactly how intellectuals roll. Click here to learn more. So the oil field in the placenta is another perfect melange of right-wing ideology and a right-wing money con. Begins with a signal ideological lie that stem cell research represents an outrage against the right to life, but the cultivation of embryos for in vitro fertilization does not. Then pulls the mark along with the right-wing fantasy that energy independence is only one miraculous technological breakthrough away. Right, but the developments of already existing alternative energy sources don't count as one of those breakthroughs, then makes its own sort of internally coherent sense when you consider the salesman, James D. Davidson, founder of the National Taxpayers Union, right, a Richard Mellonscafe-funded enterprise that gave Grover Norquist his start as a professional conservative. Davidson himself is the producer of Unanswered, the death of Vincent Foster. So he told the Washington Post, there is overwhelming evidence that Vincent Foster, the Clinton aide, was murdered. They have reasons for why they don't want this to come out. Obviously, there's something big that they are trying to protect. Now, how do these childlike appeals work their magic? Well, you need to invoke the conservative movement's childlike heroes. The giffer, Ronald Reagan, appears in another splendid specimen received by human events readers. Right? And human events is exactly where Ronald Reagan himself got a lot of the made-up stuff that he spouted across his entire political career. So when President Ronald Reagan got cancer during his presidency, this one begins, the great German doctor Hans Nieper, MD, treated him. It would have been front-page news if it hadn't been hushed up at the time. German doctors cook cancer out of your body while you nap. Many American cancer patients lose their hair and their vitality, but Reagan kept his famous pompadour hairstyle. He also kept his warm smile and vigorous style. Click here to request... German Cancer Breakthrough, a guide to top German alternative clinics. Reagan lived for another 19 years. He died at age 93 and not from cancer. So these miracle cures, get-rich-quick schemes, murderous liberals, the mystic magic mirage of a world without taxes, those weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein has hidden in the Syrian desert, finally they all connect. So let me play, uh, what do I want to play? Here's a little bit from uh, Chris Kavanaugh. He says, Lex Friedman is very mad at the distrust in science that was generated in the pandemic, not by Trump, not by his anti-vaccine friend Joe Rogan or his anti-vaccine friend Brett Weinstein, who he hosted to discuss ivermectin. No, Lex is very upset with Dr. Fauci. But the most interesting thing about all of this is Trump did play up the vaccines for a long time until his his crowd didn't want to hear about it anymore, which was crazy. It was sort of like he became a victim of the monster he created to some degree. One of the effects of all this that makes me truly sad is uh, this division over the vaccines has created distrust in science. Yeah. And also what makes me sad is the scientific uh, leaders, uh, Anthony Fauci being one of the representatives of that community, I would say completely dropped the ball. Mm. In uh, what way? They they spoke with arrogance, they spoke down to people, they spoke in a way that's, that a great scientist does not speak, which is they spoke with certainty, uh, with, without humility, 
Uh, like they have all the wisdom and ever, all of us are too dumb to understand it, but they're going to be the parent that tells us exactly what to do versus speaking to the immensity of the problem, the deep core of the problem being the uncertainty. We don't know what to do. The, the, the terrifying thing about the pandemic, we don't know anything about it as it's happening. And so you have to make decisions. You have to take risks about, well, maybe you have to overreact in order to protect the populace, but it's in the face of uncertainty. They have to do that. Not, uh, not powered, empowered by science somehow. And the deep expertise that somebody like Anthony Fauci, uh, claims to have. So like the, the, I just, I'm really troubled by, um, yeah, the distrust in science that resulted from that. And that you have to blame the leaders, I mean, to the degree. Re leaders take responsibility, and I think Anthony Fauci was the scientific leader behind um, the American response to the pandemic, and I think he failed uh, as, a, as a scientist, as a representative of science. I'm less, um, I don't know if interest... Well, yes, so then... So here's Lex explaining how it's really just an opinion as to whether the 2020 election was fair because there are issues about who was showing up to vote, whether cheating was going on. I don't think it's possible to define fair in a way that's not several paragraphs where each sentence it now has has facts, right? So you, you, what, do you, what do you mean by fair? Is it uh, who could show up to vote? What was the process of how easy it is to vote? Uh, was there actual uh, cheating going on in different, like what is the evidence of that cheating? You have to actually get to the actual like details of a thing. High level, you know, uh, everything is just going to be an opinion, it feels like. like you, and you can approximate that to yeah. be like, it's a well-founded opinion. Well, most of science is an opinion. Even physics is an opinion. So like, I think there's a threshold beyond which an opinion becomes like, uh... This is a pretty reliable thing to assume for now that this is okay. true. Okay. All right. So this is from the Twitter feed of uh, Chris Kavanaugh, kind of a center-left academic based in Japan. He writes, Lex is free to ponder whether the vaccines are effective, whether the controversy of January 6th is an invention of the media, whether Trump isn't a more appealing candidate than Biden, whether the election was fair. Issue is doing this while claiming to be above the fray. Lex might be a love-obsessed star child scowling at the horrors of the Third Reich and Stalin's gulags. He's also a sponge for right-wing partisan rhetoric and hero worships a bunch of conspiratorial blowhards who likewise believe every right-wing conspiracy they bump into. To help get a handle on the pandemic, Lex has RFK Jr.'s book on Fauci on his reading list. Same book Joe Rogan was recently promoting as opening his eyes as to what was really going on in the pandemic. Also note how little research Lex has done into RFK Jr. I don't find it super interesting. I don't find it worthy of that much discussion. Uh, smart guy, nice guy, has been doing anti-vaccine work that I don't find particularly inspiring. So it's not just anti-COVID vaccine, it's bro more broader than He's that? He's been in that space long before the COVID vaccines. Yeah, yeah, I don't find it super interesting. Well, he also wrote the book... Uh... The real Anthony Fauci is that the name of the book? Did he write that? That's interesting. I didn't. I, I don't know. That's. Okay. I'm not sure about that. I'm aware of that book. I didn't know he wrote it. I think I. Okay. But it's been a. Uh, it's been on my reading list to get. Uh, I've been trying to get a good balanced reading list about uh, the COVID pandemic to understand what the hell happened. And um, anytime I start to try to go into that place, 
It's just, I'm exhausted by it. Well, it's interesting to me that you wouldn't wait longer before delving into those books to have maybe a more clear hindsight. I, but I think this is a pretty good time. You, you don't think so? Like, this, this is... All right, that's uh, David Packman there interviewing Lex Friedman. Scroll through Chris Kavanaugh. His Twitter feed, he says, the most important thing about the new Twitter CEO is that it's not David Sachs. And then finally, blocked by Jordan Peterson. I was wondering what, but since he didn't even block me. Now, remember, I noted Jonathan Padgett's partisan conspiracy tendencies. Let's have a look here. Uh, Chris Kavanaugh, just a reminder that the Peterson verse isn't just fond of symbolic exegesis on demons and egregores, but also right-wing partisan conspiracy theorists. What else is going on here? Okay. This will always have the memories. John Peterson responds to Chris Kavanaugh, aren't you quite the smug judge? Chris Kavanaugh tweets, guilt by association or making reasonable inferences based on someone's questionable judgments and chosen social network. Showing Jordan Peterson with Jonathan Padjo. Is it Mike Lindsay? What's going on here? And uh, Kavanaugh says, to be honest, mostly I'm just preoccupied by my quest for revenge against God for the crime of being. So that was Jordan Peterson's analysis for a lot of left-wing social protests. It's a quest for revenge against God for the crime of, of being. And Jordan says, that's far more true than you might think, with all due respect given to the brilliance of your oh-so-sophisticated ironic stance. Okay. Let's get back to this terrific uh, Rick Polstein essay in The Baffler. He notes that uh, lying is an initiation into the conservative elite. It's like multi-layer marketing. The ones at the top re reap the rewards, and then they preen, pleased with themselves for mastering the game. Closing the sale is mainly a question of writing out the lie, showing that you have the skill and the stones to just brazen it out, and that you are savvy enough to ratchet up the stakes higher and higher, sneering at or ignoring your earnest, high-minded Mandarin gatekeepers. Got one Romney aide saying, we're not going to let our campaign be dictated by fact-checkers. It's another part of closing the deal. For years now, the story in the mainstream political press has been of Mitt Romney's difficulty in convincing conservatives finally that he's truly one of them. For these elites, his lying, which is so dismaying to the opinion makers of the New York Times, is how Romney has pulled it off once and for all. And at the grassroots, his fluidity with their preferred fables helps them forget why they never trusted the guy in the first place. That, that essay was written back in... 2012. All right, a little bit more on the ludicrous nature of the Dinesh D'Souza documentary, 2000 Mules. While hiding behind a smokescreen of incredibly serious allegations. After the intro is over and the cinematography takes a backseat, we meet the parties involved. This is where the film actually does do a very good job at painting a compelling picture. And the first 40 or so minutes is honestly very strong. In those 40 minutes, we meet the architects behind an organization called True the Vote. And True the Vote is an anti-election fraud initiative founded in 2009. This by itself avoids some of the immediate potential criticism because it is not a group that emerged as a direct response to the 2020 election in particular and has actually been closely involved with election security topics for over 10 years. 
Now, I think I'm going to avoid a history lesson here on who they are and where they came from, what organization they morphed out of is what I mean, and where their funding primarily originates, but that origin story is probably going to be used to discredit them at some point in time in the future because it's rather skewed. However, most people watching aren't really thinking about that and simply won't care, so I'll just move on. In these 10 past years, one of the founders has testified before Congress, and you would be forgiven for believing that the organization had also played an important part in what amounts to a successful expose of actual voter fraud. This is where the film on a surface level gains the most strength because the insinuation is that True the Vote had something or anything to do with a Republican representative who was ousted a year after his election for absentee voter fraud. The story is rather complicated, but Representative Mark Harris's campaign had run an illegal voter fraud operation in the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina that eventually fell apart as a result of testimony from family members, I believe. And True the Vote had nothing to do with this, but clever context framing and the willingness of this documentary crew to use examples on their own side of the aisle builds a sense of impartiality. Now, personally, I happen to have pre-existing knowledge on this topic from a different video I almost did, so it immediately had me skeptical when the framing seemed to point to them being somehow involved. It's not explicitly stated directly that they're involved, but I would be willing to bet that many people watching had that sort of impression. However, that's less important as they get further into their claims, because what comes next is fairly serious. True the Vote claims that there is a process by which voters are paid for absentee or mail-in ballots through a mule and charity system, where those ballots are then filled out and distributed to drop boxes by a network of individuals on a massive scale. The way that they have determined this is geolocation tracking data from individual cell phones, and to bolster the credibility of that technology, they cite a police case where it is used to catch violent criminals. It is claimed directly that True the Vote purchased cell phone geo-tracking data in the area of an incident where a young girl was killed, tragically, evaluated that data, and then turned it over to the FBI, resulting in more arrests and greater closure to that case, which, if true, is amazing and commendable. This kind of application is fantastic, and it very much does lend credence to the idea that this technology and this data could be used to evaluate the election. So how does it work? The framework is rather simple and relies on tracking the pattern of movement for individuals who visit a multitude of ballot dropbox locations, as well as the unnamed charities that are alleged to be the dispersal mechanisms for fraudulent ballots. The example they give is this. One individual being tracked by data points from their cell phone, geolocation tracking data, visits 28 ballot dropboxes in the same day. Some of them are clearly reached after a significant course deviation, specifically to that particular area, and five of the unnamed charities as well. This is where the documentary reaches a tipping point. They've established credibility for the technology that they use to evaluate where people are going and when. They have reached across the aisle and elevated the idea that election security is bipartisan and un unbiased, I guess is the right word for it. And they have now drawn what appears to be a seriously improbable movement pattern to 28 ballot boxes on the same day. This is the time when viewers will likely begin to either buy into what they are saying full scale or begin to back away as the rest is generally unfolding. What follows next is a buckshot approach to the data where they jump from a single individual and highly suspect pattern of movement on a particular day to the hundreds, even thousands of similar cases that they saw in major swing state regions. I'll spare everyone the details of how many they allege and in, in what particular locations, but a spattering of important counties are claimed as having a great many similar patterns where individuals are visiting 20, 30, even 50 ballot drop boxes on the same day or the same night. Now, by itself, in my opinion, this is worth digging into, but they go further. 
Through a request process, True the Vote was able to acquire official state CCTV footage of these boxes in specific areas that reveal exactly what some of these individuals were doing when they visited. They were not able to get footage from all of the states that they looked at, but for some, they were allowed through a public request process to... Okay, it seems to be a fair-minded analysis of the ridiculous Dinesh D'Souza documentary 2000 Mules. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Claire Kaur talked about her first time visiting a... Her interest in these time. ideas are... Well, there are lots of right-wing dudes, and they get cancelled all over the place. And I assume that Luke's mm -hmm. stratagem was, was basically, well, if I convert to, to um, Judaism, I can talk about Jews the whole time, and nobody will ever accuse me of anti-Semitism. <laughs> and, and I can, you know, I think, I'm sure that that's, because you, 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 you listen to him, and it's obvious he doesn't believe in God. You know, he just he remembers to sort of act Jewish and put on his kippah. You know, but that's it, he doesn't believe in God. Luke Ford says that at, Orf at Orthodox synagogue in 20 years of attending Orthodox synagogue he's never heard anybody talk about God in the synagogue I mean is this true that that's not quite what I'm saying I I think I said that uh, nobody's ever tried to interrogate me what I believe about God now I believe in the conventional traditional Jewish understanding of God I believe in one God who created the universe who gave the Torah to us and who holds us morally accountable for our behavior I believe in a God who rewards and punishes both in this life and in the world to come. What goes uh, on in there? For well, real? You, you know, it's, it's probably a bit like joining a political party and then being a little surprised. They just go for the food. Politics. They never talk politics. You know, it's almost as if they don't dare talk politics in case, you know, they start arguing with each other. I mean, if they ever talk politics, it's about, you know, arranging meetings and hustings and, you know, whatever it is, but never about, you know, any political principle. Mm. It's just for the free buffet on a Saturday or something. Is that they get round? Uh, kind of. I mean, because the Tories have really kind of cornered it. Well, you know, we are our, your local social club with a nice, you know, respectable people, and um, you know, and, and you know, that's why we have our, you know, um, bridge evenings and you know, cricket clubs and blah blah blah. There are a whole variety of reasons that uh, Jews go to synagogue. There are social reasons. There are spiritual reasons. There are intellectual reasons. I mean. To, to see your friends, to make new friends, to get refreshed spiritually, to learn more about the Torah and the Jewish tradition, find out more about what's going on in Jewish life. Well, you know, and, and, and of course the locals are hooked because they want to be with their friends. So they'll shut up about politics and, and can be made to agree to anything because they want their social club. Yeah, so who knows what goes on in the synagogue? And I, I'm not casting aspersions, maybe it's just uh, lots of nepotism. Who knows? Well, okay, I, I, I've only been in a synagogue once, um, mm. and, and oh, we didn't, you know, we just had to come and say we've, we've, you know, been to the, you know, Yom Kippur thing, um, to hear the shofar, and then off we went. Um, um, to, you know, we just made an appearance, really. Um, but, but, you know, and it was an Orthodox synagogue, and it, it, it was like, I felt, <laughs> okay, I was with this Orthodox US friend, and, and, and she, it was in Bristol and she hadn't been before, but anyway, she was staying there. And so she took me there and she basically wrapped me up in clothes and, you know, just made sure I would look <laughs> that I wouldn't be the part. And I did. And, and so we went upstairs and it was, there were all these schoolgirls in their ripped jeans playing with their phone and chatting to each other. And every now and then somebody goes, shh, and then there'd be just silence and then it'd start again. And I felt like, you know, how, how can you come wearing those ripped jeans to your synagogue? I mean, I didn't do any of those things, but that was on the tip of my tongue. Um, and, and the noise, but then, you know, the girls were above and, you know, all the things were going on below and they didn't really be part of it. Did you say this was an orthodox or a liberal? An orthodox one, the, the, the right. women get to sit upstairs and, you know, if it's mm. sort of slightly orthodox, there's a screen, but I mean, it was a proper old synagogue, so we went upstairs. Mm. And it's separate floors, or do you like look down upon the men? Yes, you look down upon the men. And, and, and <laughs> the, the usual rabbi was away and it was the sort of junior caretaker rabbi, you know, telling jokes. 
And it was like, you know, what's that? I expected something more serious, and you know, but but it was it was really terrible. I thought anyway. Mm. Well, anyway, this is what Luke Ford says. Twenty years of going to synagogue, he says nobody's ever asked him if he believes in God. So it's, it's actually rude to, to, to ask that. I mean, you know, you don't go to church and ask people if they really believe in God. They tell you to fuck off, wouldn't they? Well, <laughs> I, I, just, mean, you know, I, I, I mean, okay, imagine going to, I don't know, the Tory party, you know, the bridge evening and asking people there if they're really Tories. <laughs> yeah, but there is. Yeah, you don't get interrogated about your religious beliefs when you go to synagogue. It's fun. There is this strange thing that Luke Ford tries to explain in that. That being an Orthodox Jew is about observance and not about belief. That... It's primarily about, you know, carrying on the traditions of your people, right? It's not primarily about, you know, espousing certain beliefs. Now, most people who observe and make the sacrifices that Orthodox Judaism requires, of course, are going to buy into the beliefs. It'd be very hard to sustain Orthodox Jewish observance if you, in the final analysis, did not believe in the God of the Torah. That you can, you can be an Orthodox Jew and you can be a convert to Orthodox Jew, and all you have to do is observe the rules, and nobody gives a shit about what you actually believe. Yeah, says. because they can't read your mind, and, you know, the, the, the presumption is that you're doing it because you believe, otherwise why are you doing it? Oh, okay, maybe you're doing it to please your parents and family, or you're pleasing it to, you know, to, you know because you married into, you know, a Jewess or a Jew, and you're doing it. And Hathio says in the chat, Catholics practice nepotism in my community, and it produces stronger bonds. Imagine being against stability for your people. You know, to show that you have conformed to, you know, the tribal requirements of, of your spouse's religion. Um, so, so yes, but, but so is Islam. It's, it's sort of like, no, no, we're not like Christians who just say they believe this absurdity and they really don't and they can do anything. You know, it's like, yeah, we, we, we do have restrictions and we, we're, and, and we express our Jewish or Islamic identity by not doing the things that we're not supposed to do. And, and, and you know, it is an expression of, of identity. But, you know, whether people... It's a bit like a cult then, really, isn't it? A bit like a cult. Well, a cult is just a fringe religion. I mean, that's how I understand cults. But, but you know, fringe religions can become, you know, the established religion of mm. your religion. Okay, Claire, call there on her one visit to... Last year in the midterms, that white, white supremacist fanatic. This is Richard Spencer. That you can put up an avatar of whomever, an anime character, a, uh, you know, vintage photo. Talking about uh, this trend of uh, Latino Nazis and uh, right-wing death squads. A, uh, a photo of some blonde, uh, um, you know, Conan the Barbarian type, um, while you live in Malaysia or while you are not quite close to being Hispanic. Um, these are interesting subjects and worth talking about. So let me let some people in who um, have requested. All right, Charles. Charles Johnson. Um, I'm usually the one commandeering your Twitter spaces, but now I'm well, returning the favor. Uh, turn about is fair play. Um, <laughs> I, I should note that, like, I don't think the timing of these shootings is uh unlinked from the mm. uh, prosecution of the proud boys oh wow right so you know I i've long suspected and you know there, there are other people in this space as well who, who agree with me on this that many of these instances of, of mass shooting mass violence uh are linked to uh poli you know, geopolitics so for instance i believe the the russian sanctions were passed basically the same day as the sandy hook shooting rather famously and it does seem as if we have among us certain people that are mentally ill mentally disturbed and that they have, in fact, been made that way by mm. easy availability of drugs. You know, there was a story in Bloomberg recently about how a lot of a lot of um, marijuana is leading to high instances of schizophrenia. You know, I'd be happy to post that on the Jumbotron. Similarly, what was going on uh, at the same time as the uh, shooting in Buffalo was uh, was the sort of investigation and inquiry by the State Department into the Israelis killing uh, the, the Palestinian-American journalist uh, Abu Akaleh. Uh, I think that's how you say her name. 
a bunch of them were a bunch okay, of them were see. or he got rid of i should say conspiratorial manner they're using it in a kind of actuarial manner where it's like so marjorie taylor green says we should have a grand divorce and then you know 99.9 percent .9 of her people will hear that and resonate with it and not do anything but there's that you know 0.101 percent that will take that a little too seriously so that when you put something out there um it's going it might have an effect now i don't fully dispute that but i i am fairly skeptical of that but i think what's going on is something much kind of worse with stochastic terrorism it's first off outright incitement and secondly it is um, in the sense of what charles was talking about about some of these shooters you know we don't know all these things but who was talking to them uh there was this interesting case of a former fbi agent talking to uh the buffalo guy who was in his chat and talking to him even i think on even at the day of the event and things like that so i think it's more kind of direct than we imagine but the other thing is that is that way of like what everything's based on a lie but like when you're breaking down one religious viewpoint which is you know the, the religious viewpoint that most people hold is a kind of american liberalism and american exceptionalism and democracy and all that kind of stuff when you break that down what do you put in its place so i wouldn't say it's breaking down enlightenment thinking i think it's breaking down a religious conception uh, a post-christian secularization sure, sure. of richard i think uh, it's specifically uh, about let me finish and i'll pass it the time to Vic. what do you put in its place and I do think that there, you know, what are you incepting in these people? And I think, I think, you know, Christopher Nolan film, excellent metaphor. I think he was actually talking about matters like this in that film. Um, but what are you putting in its place? What kind of new ideas are you going to place in their brain and that they, they are going to think they came up with themselves? And I, I think that's the kind of danger of a lot of the red pill ideology in the right is that it, it doesn't really lead anywhere but this. You know, like, I, this is a great thing that Charles has emphasized of the Flight 93 election as a kind of metaphor. You know, like, let's storm the cockpit. Can we fly the plane? Oh, hell no. Are we going to probably crash anyway? Yeah. But like, let's just do it. That like incepted the idea of January 6th in the minds of millions of boomers. That article, which was passed around like gangbusters, you know, a, a month before the election. That incepted that idea that we have to do something. You have to take action, even if that action is stupid and pointless and, and damaging. Sure. Can I, can I add something? Because sure. I, 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 I read. Okay. The Flight 93 election was uh, written by Michael Anton. Oh no, it's it's crashed. I was about to bring you insights from this show that would forever change your life. Or the life. gold stuff as a way of it. Welcome. Okay. Leanne, you have to unmute yourself. Come on, guys. I'm trying to Going run once, a high quality twice. There show you here. <laughs> yes, Leanne. Okay, Leanne, you got to get prepared before you join the space, all right? Uh, you've been removed from being a speaker, but you can still listen, of course. Let me talk a little bit about the Proud Boys. Um, so I think, I think the first I heard of the Proud Boys was when Gavin McGinnis sent me an email about them. And this was before the election of Trump. It was well into the alt-right era, era, and it was well into alt-right hysteria at that point. And Gavin sent an email to Peter Bremelow, Jared Taylor, and myself. And it was a very brief one. I actually read it in my audio uh, essay thing, my audio journal. And it basically said, oh, hey guys, uh, I just want to let you know that I'm starting this group called the Proud Boys. And um, you guys are welcome to kind of participate to some degree. I think he invited us to his Facebook group, which you know I would uh, rather go to the dentist, I think. But um, nevertheless, uh, he, he almost wanted to kind of run it. I mean, he run it by us or, or kind of get the goodwill of you know, the top white nationalist ideologues of the alt-right era. And he said, oh, you know, we're, we're a multiracial group, but you know, we think the West is best and the West was created by white men. So, you know, basically we're a white nationalist group, although we're going to allow in all these other people. Um, that's the way that he pitched it. He certainly didn't pitch it as an army or as violent. Now, Gavin McGinnis on his program 
uh, the Gavin McGinnis show and any various programs. And I, you know, full disclosure, I went on his Gavin McGinnis show a few times, probably three or four, maybe more times. And I did not witness this myself, but I've seen clips. The, this is, you cannot deny this. The guy is frankly calling for violence. There is no other way to interpret what he is saying. He basically says, if you see someone who looks like Antifa, go punch him in the face. We need a strike first. You don't need to defend yourself. Many of us are going to go to jail. Many of us are going to die. That's all right. You've, you've just got to go do it. It was that Flight 93 stuff, you know, on steroids, basically. Um, so the notion that Gavin keeps telling everyone that he created this little drinking club and it got out of hand and so on is complete nonsense. I mean, if anything, Gavin was far more violent than the people who were joining his group, at least at the beginning. Um, that, that's what I imagine. Again, I've never really attended a proud. I've never attended a proud way gathering. I've never, you know. I but, went to only one and it was extremely uh, not lady friendly. As you might, right. as you might imagine, and, well, yeah, and, and, and he's going for a, a different... gay club, and I don't think you're totally wrong about that. Right. Well, I'm not. I'm not so. I'm sure there were gays in there. I remember seeing these things of like the, the Proud Boy blog where they were like promoting trannies, or I, I should say, um, oh, gosh, sorry, I should say transsexual Americans. I really don't want to get banned. Don't don't want to use casual language like that. They were promoting transsexuals who were like saying, you know, oh, I'm right wing, I love Trump, and I'm a woman, and blah blah blah. And so it was very open. Now they also allowed in any religion except Islam, at least at the beginning. So they were they had kind of that a residue of that. Uh, 2000s era anti-Islamic stuff going on. Uh, but they, so it, it seemingly you could be atheist, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, whatever, and you could join. Um, and I think that was very true. But again, Gavin was calling for violence quite directly. He was opening things up and there was a real proletarian quality to it. I'm sure there were gays involved, but my reading of it, my reading of the vibes was that it was very working class and it was, it was a lot like TRS or the right stuff, kind of this bombastic, reactionary, overweight uh, crank we're really attracted to the Proud Boys. There's probably a huge amount of crossover. I actually heard this. There was a huge amount of crossover between TRS and the Proud Boys. Um, and so it was, you already see here, they're kind of opening up to the Hispanic right-wing death squad. Like they, they would be totally cool with that. Oh, you're, you're Catholic and uh, you hate black crime and you hate the Democrats and blah, blah, blah. Um, so fast forward a little bit, there was some street uh, scuffles or fist fights that went on and they got pretty violent and Gavin decided to back away. Now he said that his reasoning was that he didn't want there to be an actual leader of the group so that it couldn't be called a gang. So I, I think this was all just bullshit effectively. I mean, a gang, I don't know, in a way, a gangs don't have leaders. They might have an alpha somewhere, but they're, they're real, you know, it's real consensual. Um, an organization of course has a hierarchy and a leader and an owner and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know what the hell Gavin is talking about. He was in a way inspiring it to be more of a gang and he installed a leader right after him. So basically what he said was nonsensical. And he inspired Enrico Tario, who was mentioned earlier. I didn't know anything about Enrico Tario's background. I learned later that he was federal informant of some kind. He's now going to... Enrique, Enrique Tario. Yes, he was, Enrique, in some, he was involved in some drug sales back in the day, as he explained it to me. He was, he was stealing or pilfering some kind of drugs that he was also selling on the street. And that's when he went to federal prison. And, um, and he was a federal informant involved in basically catching other people who were involved in the drug gang. Right. Yes. Uh, a wonderful gentleman, in, in other words. And I would uh, say he is quite charming in person as far as these things go. But, but yes, go ahead. Well, I've never met him and I'm glad that I've never met him. <laughs> no, and, and I could see. I, let me put it this way. I could see how he could persuade a bunch of men who are kind of natural betas to do stupid, crazy things. I mean, he's right. This is uh, Chuck Johnson here speaking with Richard Spencer. Yeah, he is quite charming and able. I mean, he is the center of every room he walks into. He's like one of those charming Hispanic types. Interesting. He was the yeah. an Antonio Banderas of the, yes, uh, kind of. Yes, I mean, he, the he is the squad class. Yes. yes, he is the type that would inspire you to follow him. And I myself don't really go for that. And I was like, holy shit, this guy's very persuasive when I saw when I last spoke to him, like maybe three or four years ago. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this guy's this guy's clearly like up to no good. And I need to stay away from him. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Interesting. So anyway, he um, he gets installed. And so you already have a Hispanic face to a white nationalist organization. So all of this talk about, 
you know, Hispanics can't be involved in this kind of stuff is bollocks at this point. I mean, it's, it's already happened. In, in fact, Hispanics are, in this case, quite literally taking the lead of violent right-wing organizations. They're doing the um, job that white Americans won't do, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, as they, as they are wont to do. And, you know, it's interesting also with Gavin's stuff. So Gavin, all, he's, he's made all these curious statements that looked at, a retros, looked at retrospectively might be revealing. So when he was working for Rebel Media, he went to Israel, and he and Faith Goldie were doing this kind of like... Um, you know, jerk off session for Zionism, basically just how great it is and wonderful. It's so right wing and everyone here loves Trump. And it was very much of the kind of rebel media 2016 vibe. And at one point, Gavin McGinnis said, you know, I can't believe that they hate us uh, MAGA people because, you know, I'm a Nazi for Israel. <laughs> and it's a curious turn of phrase. Now, Gavin obviously is a pretty outrageous guy. And um, I can see him saying some silly thing like that, where he's both kind of being politically incorrect while being outrageous all at the same time. But I wonder, you know, how literal that statement was, in fact, him, him being a Nazi for Israel, as it were. Um, and uh, we should probably think about that and, and take his words seriously. Um, but there is no doubt. I mean, I, I have gotten to the point where I would poo-poo all of this kind of liberal hysteria about, say, Russian interference or, you know, these alt-right groups being terrorist organizations. I would probably poo-poo those, you know, five years ago and just basically like, no, these are, you know, these are organizations. These are Americans working for a political goal. You can't just shut us up by using the T word that is terrorist. At this point, I mean, I have a very different perspective on this. I mean, what exactly is the point of the Proud Boys outside of violence? I mean, I guess it is a drinking club, and I'm sure they all meet together, but you can do that anyway. And I actually spoke to a um, young woman who actually lives in Portland, and she was just telling me all of these, you know, squalid and hilarious stories about the Proud Boys' battles with Antifa in Portland. It's just this, it, it, it resembles, it's exactly like gang warfare. And there's also just no doubt that the Proud Boys, along with the Oath Keepers, were a kind of army that was used in order to uh, attack the capital and attempt to overthrow the government. I mean, I don't know how we can describe it as anything other than that. And the notion that right-wingers just like will endlessly apologize for this stuff and just like endlessly avoid talking about the reality of the situation just never ceases to amaze me. That is what it is. I'm sure ISIS is a drinking club as well. I bet ISIS started out with a guy saying, you know, oh, I just want to start a fun event. You know, we can get together and talk about Islam and read the Quran together or whatever. And, you know, but no one would deny that the, you know, most pressing function of ISIS is as a terror organization. So I don't know what we're going to find out with regard to the Allen, Texas shooter. But, you know, is he a member of the Proud Boys? Is he part of these online chat groups? Is he kind of like a wannabe Proud Boy in a way? Um, I, I, again, we don't know. But like all of these things sound extremely plausible in my mind. I agree. And I think we should we should say, too, that many of these protests and fights all occur in areas that are opportunity zones. Right. So we saw with the riots in 2020, the connections of, you know, various sort of you know, black street gangs that were moving drugs. And they were, of course, you know, rioting in Minneapolis, where lots of the uh, where lots of uh, basically, you know, drug known drug roads were. And if you burn down an area and they're all in an opportunity zone where well, you can buy that property quite cheaply now. Can't right. So there's a certain sense in which the gangs are kind of used, the kind of fake battles are used. To, to destroy the property values of the surrounding area so that other, you know, gentrification and other efforts can take place. Right. They didn't quite use the alt-right for all of these things. I mean, I think the, the alt-right in many ways was just subsumed into the broader American right. I, I do think that that, was, that happened, whether that was an objective or not, I, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, you I mean, know, like, I mean J.D. Vance, Vance sounds awfully like, uh, you know, things that you or I used to say like five years ago about Israel and its birth oh, yeah. rates and the rest of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He so in many respects, like these arguments Indiana, won. Basically. Yeah, these yeah. arguments won, basically. They took over the Republican Party in a lot of ways, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, I think unfortunately as well. And QAnon is, you know, a hundred or a thousand times larger than the alt-right ever was. And, and I think the alt-right, to the degree that it was still relevant in 2020, it was because it was Q-adjacent. 
uh, so to speak. It was basically using those talking points uh, while doing something else. Yeah, we, we, anyway, should also, we should remember that the beer hall push took place, right? The Nazis were themselves a drinking club, which, uh, sure. which I think is something that's often overlooked as well. You know, sure. I, I want to ask you guys one quick thing. Thank you for the, the speaker. Uh, both, I think you, Richard, and. Okay, did you guys know how dangerous comedy is? many people so easily offended? Joining us now from New York, Kat Timpf, Fox News analyst and Gutfeld regular, and author of the new book, You Can't Joke About That, Why Everything is Funny, Nothing is Sacred, and We're All in This Together. So, Kat, you were a young, struggling stand-up comic. You met a guy who said you might be able to make some money at Atlantic City Club. You took the bus to the hotel. They said there were no more rooms available, so you had to share one with this creep. Then what happened? Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot of stories in the book. That is one of them. I took the bus there, and only when I arrived did I find out that the condo we were supposed to be sharing was just his room with one bed in it. Uh, <laughs> things got worse after that. You know, he, he very made a very aggressive attempt at hooking up with me. Uh, he sort of smeared me afterwards. It was an absolutely horrible experience. It was a lot. Of, I, I took the bus back, and I actually had a better time on the bus than I did that whole weekend. <laughs> um, I struggled a lot, but a lot of the jokes in that chapter and all my chapters that I wrote were jokes that I was telling as I was sort of going through these experiences. Sure. I think when we talk about comedy and we talk about speech, there's this focus on you can say whatever you want, and if it offends somebody, that's too bad. And I believe that that's true. I mm -hmm. absolutely believe in free speech, but I think that also ignores the way that that comedy and humor can sort of heal us as individuals, but also bring us closer together. Because the way that I've shared some of these stories, I was joking around, I mean, he had a horrible self-tanner, so I called him, you know, Jurgens throughout the book, yes. as in Jurgens, natural glow. Right. Because when you can express yourself through humor and people can listen, that is really can connect you with the people around you. And that's something that I found throughout all of these yeah. experiences. You left one life. little detail out of that story, which is after you went to the Atlantic City place and didn't get a great reception you got bombed and by the way i would have gotten bombed too yeah i sure did <laughs> so let's talk about twitter and what you call the outrage machine so here's a case in point you mocked in a tweet star wars saying something that i thought was really mild i've <laughs> never had any interest in watching space nerds poke each other with their little space nerd sticks what happened after that yeah, I, I had also said I'd been too busy liking cool things and being attractive to have seen the movie. I got <laughs> really bad death threats, not just death suggestions, but people saying things along the lines of, I'll be at your apartment at 8 a.m. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to wow. kill you. Um, and I actually refuse to apologize because I think that when we sort of oversaturate with apologies, mm -hmm. first of all, we create these cultural standards that are not in line with what we really actually believe. And also, when you really do want to say you're sorry, nobody believes you because of that oversaturation. And in my book, I talk about how what people say they believe on many different issues and what they actually believe. Is there's these huge gaps between that because people are afraid of being canceled. I think it's more time for us to be open and honest with how we really feel. Well, good for you for not apologizing. A very mild Star Wars joke, and you yeah. get the. I mean, what is the world coming to? Now you talk about outlawing hate speech and how that's a dilemma, and if it were to be done, would the government have a role in outlawing hate speech? Yeah. See, I've never understood how so many of the people who, for example, thought that Trump was Hitler or called him Hitler also were the same ones who thought we should have some sort of laws governing speech. And I'm, I don't know how you can think those two things at the same time. So it's like you think this guy's Hitler, but also you want this government who the head of the executive branch is to have the power to control your speech, right? Mm -hmm. I think that 
all speech needs to be protected because otherwise you're saying that someone else should get to decide what you can and can't say, and you never know who those people are going to be who are in those positions of power, and they might not have that same definition as you have. And as soon as we take away our speech, we are really limiting our abilities to be able to connect with those right. around us. You say you're sick of oversensitive mobs, online mobs, and so am I, by the way. Uh, when Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked during her hearings to define a woman and said, I'm not a biologist, she was widely mocked. You didn't join the pylon. And so I'm wondering, uh, as a, somebody who makes people laugh in part for a living you're always going to be offending someone does it make it rain does that make you rein yourself in even in a case like involving justice jackson i right i i I think she gave that answer because she just panicked when she heard okay trans stuff is coming up i'm I'm gonna say the wrong thing and i have felt like that too but i've caught myself feeling like that and ultimately especially in comedy and whether you're a professional comedian or just somebody at a party You really don't know if a joke's going to work until you actually try it. But I've also found that a lot of these these rules actually for speech, they actually hurt the people that they're aiming to help the most. One example for me would be Mother's Day. This is the eighth Mother's Day. without my mom. And I remember the first Mother's Day, I was, you know, just so sad looking at all the posts on Mm -hmm. Instagram. And the second Mother's Day, I posted a picture of a laundry basket and a bottle of Tide. I write about this in the book. And I said, mom's dad going to do some laundry. And I kind of laughed and went about my day. Obviously not because it wasn't sad for me. It's devastating for me. But then the people in the comments were saying, you know, that's so offensive. And I to who? I mean, you don't even know her. And somehow they see themselves as being compassionate for policing the way that I'm dealing with yeah. my own grief. Right. Well, that's a classic example, and I'm glad you are still funny. And my favorite detail is that when you were... Okay. Let's uh, play a little uh, Jean-Francois Garapi here talking with... I did Spencer. it. Like, it's, he's the most like <laughs> self-centered person ever. But anyway... Um, he, he said that now we got rid of Roe v. Wade, so now we have a bargaining chip. Now, now we have leverage to... Neg- He's talking about Donald Trump. Negotiate. So what that's, and then he, he, he was asked many times, like, will you, by Caitlin Collins, will you sign an abortion ban of six weeks or something like that? And he just won't answer it. Um, but so, so I think in, in this way, like Trump is almost behind the times. I, I think there's, I think if you look at these situations like January 6th or some of these abortion bans that are going through, so some of the kind of rage that's simmering and also the, the inability of the liberals to actually lead, you know, like. They, they just want to one thing I noticed after this town hall to bring, to bring it back to mundane things that are happening today is that like some so much of the liberal criticism is just so dumb. You know, like I saw a clip of AOC and she's saying, you know, by allowing Donald Trump onto CNN, you endangered a victim of sexual violence. So she's her argument is literally that Jean Carroll is going to be attacked or something because of a town hall debate. Like she can't make a serious argument that isn't about some personal harm avoidance of a victim, yes. in this case, women. That's even how she understood J6. I'm not even sure someone like, like, I, I think that J6 was, in fact, a threat to democracy, you know, as we know it, at least. It was very democratic in its way, but it's a threat to the status quo democracy. I'm not even sure AOC or these, these types of politicians really understand it, like, beyond the personal level of, there were some guys outside my office, and oh my God, they wanted to rape me or something. <laughs> Like she didn't understand the level at which it, it actually was a shock to the system and an, an embarrassment for the United States. She, I, I'm not even positive she can actually wrap her mind around that. And, and so when I see things like this, and I, and I do think there's some hegemonic liberals who do get it, but when I see like liberals like this, I, I tend to think that they actually are going to lose to a 
bombastic, vulgar, right-wing backlash. And I'm not saying this is coming from people like you or, or me or, or Mark or et cetera. I, I think it's not. I think it's, it, it's, it's coming from people well down the IQ scale from us, well up the Christian scale from us, and well, well up the willingness to use violence scale. Yeah. And, and I, say, I, and I, I, I sometimes think they're going to win. Well, I, I, I'm not going to necessarily cheer for it, but I almost, I, I get to points where I almost want them to win because at the very least, like it, it would kind of clean the slate. And, and also like, I don't, I guess I am a bit of a moral nihilist kind of like you on some level, like either you're going to be hegemonic and you're going to know what it takes to win or you're not, and you're going to lose and you might end up dead. Like either you're willing to do that or you're not. And mm -hmm. if you're just going to sit around and do all this silly, like, a harm avoidance talk or like we need to protect Jean Carroll at this terrible, terrible moment she's facing. I'm just like, well, I think you deserve to lose if this is how you think. And that's you know? the other side of the middle of our own disappointment because I cannot recover the excitement for Trump that I had in 2016, but right. the left will not be able to recover their hate for Trump that they had uh, when they voted Joe Biden. So it's, it all stems, it's all stems on whether the left is capable of frustrating themselves enough so that they want it as hard as they wanted it in 2020. And I'm not sure they can. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think that there's a kind of emotional exhaustion on both sides of the spectrum. Um, yeah. And, you know, and I think especially, uh, of course, the events. Okay, let me fast forward past the Mark Brahman commentary. You know what? We don't want that. And well, it's still going. Um, the jury's still out. No, I mean, I he's think it's still just, going. You know, sort of guarded. Uh, no, he's still going. Violent anger over and depression. Corporate profits are up. Those are. Um, now, granted, he is kind of the American dream is dead. it's almost like we're back in place okay. because uh, um, you know and of course he's only one um, force out there or one development but I think a, a pretty meaningful or significant force or development anyways end, end of uh, rant yeah um, to, to go back a little bit to the the zeitgeist notion um, I think we're in a in a very you know particular place because what are some of the biggest applause lines of Donald Trump? And, you know, in getting back to what we were talking about, you know, an hour or so ago of how it's, it's almost like we're back in 2016 and we've forgotten that he was president at some point, you know, um, his big applause lines are like, our country is dead. The American dream is dead. Joe Biden has destroyed everything. You have no hope now. You're a nasty um, and woman. And yes, he's, yeah, you're a nasty, nasty woman. Um, now, granted, he is kind of saying you have hope with me or I alone can fix it. Or he's, he's, he's... The, the CNN town hall is the first time that I remember in years watching Donald Trump be, be funny again. So yeah, it does have some of that 2015, 2016 energy. It's offering some kind of answer, but it's interesting that those are the applause lines. Like that, that's how you motivate people more. And the conventional Republicans who want to just talk about like, well, corporate pro profits are up this year. Uh, so uh, we're all doing better because of it. That just doesn't work. And so there's a, there is a kind of like violent anger over and depression on the right. But I think there's there's also an issue of like the absence of a vision or a utopia on the left. And and, and I think, and I'll, I'll describe that in two different ways. So I think in, a, in this weird way, if anyone actually has a utopian vision on the left, it's Joe Biden. And I kind of mean that seriously. It's not like he imagines, you know, <laughs> techno future or something like that, but he basically imagines a functioning middle-class America, a lot like his childhood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, factories, production, you know, intact families, et cetera. I, I think what I see from the far or progressives or something really is an absence of a vision. And 
I listen to a lot of their stuff. I'm, I'm not just stereotyping them or caricaturing them or something like that. It, 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 as you said, it is pure harm avoidance and pure, in, in a weird way, reactionary mm -hmm. qualities, like getting really worried about someone like being mean to trans kids or something. And I, I just, you can't ultimately really win with that. Like you've got to offer something just extremely compelling and just, just moving, emotionally moving about this destruction of the human person, which they keep pursuing. Otherwise it's just like protect trans kids or something. You know, it's just, it's just fucking like kindergarten teachers effectively. Yes. Policing language and protecting, it's just pathetic. You know, like omelets, eggs, we know this, you know, to build the, like, I'm just going to quite frankly say it. You're going to have to tear some things down. You're going to have to break new ground and you're going to probably have to kill some people in order to build this bright new utopian future that's promised. Every leftist agreed with that, even if they wouldn't say it. These leftists almost don't. Like they're, they're, they're protecting the status quo. They're shrieking about like, I hope we can get another lawsuit against Trump so we can prevent him from installing <laughs> Nazism or something. It, it's like literally the most pathetic thing I've ever experienced actually. Not that it's not powerful and kind of damaging to people that they, they go after. It is damaging to Trump, all this law, you know, endless lawsuits and blah, blah, blah. But it, it's just fundamentally pathetic on some level. Yes. And so that, that's my critique of the left at this point. But, but that, then that was this... the most inspiring critique of the left I've ever heard. Like, I wish I was a leftist <laughs> and, and I would be like, yes, Richard is my leader. <laughs> hey, let's get uh, some highlights from Donald Trump's debate. Her dog or her cat was named Vagina. Her dog, or her cat was named Vagina. Her dog, or her cat was named Vagina. Okay, what's going on? Name and what you do for a Good Shabbos, everyone. If we could all just go around, say your name and what you do for a living. Okay. Good Shabbos. I'm Benjamin. I'm a doctor. Hi, I'm Rivki. I'm a lawyer. Shmuley. Attorney of Medicinal Law. I am Chava. Good Shabbos. L'chaim. Amen. Salah. And what do you do? What do I do? I work. On my mido. On my... Character. Kasher im hakarush baruchu. Heard of him? Relationship with God. On my Derech Eretz. Uh, on goodness. my... Ivrim. On my Chalulim Chalulim. On my Lahad Leek Ne'er Shell Yom Tov. Celebrating. Also, Judaism isn't even about like what we do, right? You know, it's about who we are. Oh, so you're unemployed? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay, the best of uh, Froom TikTok. To me while converting to Judaism, part one. Not being able to pass the wine to someone is the probably the most traumatizing thing ever. Hey, can you pass the wine? And you're just looking at the bottle like, is that the Vashal or not? Okay, what else we got here? 252, and I'd like to order a sandwich. Hello, I'm calling from. Okay, I can do this. I can do this. Hello? I'm a sandwich. Now that my now Jewish self would find strange, part two. What time does Shabbos start? What bracha do you make on this? Where are you first days? Can you just voice note me? Is he FFB? It was very nice. That's so cute. What else? Don't give me... Don't 
Don't give me this copyrighted music, man. Wow, she's really learning to Dovin. Whoa. Whoa. Man, stop stop all the, the music. In my life at seven. No. Day in my life. Wait, maybe this one. Wake up at six. Feeling my way through. Okay, day in the life. Why does she have to keep using all that uh, copyrighted music? So she gets up early, has a little breakfast, has a morning run, post-workout snack, time to get ready for the day. 9 a.m. time for Torah class. Man, wish I could play the audio. A lovely classroom, looks like in Jerusalem. Here from 9 to 1. Maybe this is where she's uh, learning Hebrew. One hour for lunch. Afternoon classes from 2 to 5. Maybe there's another video here. This time last year, I had my last meeting with the Bay's Den. It was right before Pesach, and they told me, after Pesach, contact us, and we will schedule the next steps of your conversion, which was the end. After Pesach, there was some issues getting in touch with the Bay's Den, and I had to wait. Five weeks went by, and I finally got back in touch with the Bay's Den, and we scheduled my conversion date. Looking back, I see that timing couldn't have been any more perfect. I ended up finishing my conversion days before Shavuos. And just as Kal Yisrael was counting the Omer to get their Torah on Shavuos, I was waiting to be a part of Kal Yisrael and get my very own Torah. Sometimes we think we know what's best for us, but Hashem has other plans. And this turned out even better than I could have ever imagined. All right, getting up, 3.30 a.m. to Dublin at the Kotel, the Western Wall. Earliest time that you can pray. Ready for morning prayers. We just sat in faith, and honestly, it was so, so beautiful. And right when the Shona asked me started, it was super quiet, and it was so, so beautiful. What an amazing job, Come on. So she went from a, uh, a bartender to a convert to Orthodox Judaism. So she had to change her entire wardrobe. So one thing that uh, many female converts have to do is throw out all their pants, throw out all their jeans. Depending on how rigorous the conversion is. Okay, let's see what else is going on with the Froom TikTok. Mikvah, and we're going to get a tour. What a woman does step by step in a mikvah. Going to mikvah is so private. So they really ensure that here they have everything electronic. You enter through a phone number. They have an underground garage. This I love. You're welcome to the day of the week on the mat. Except from your husband for two weeks, and it's a beautiful mitzvah, but it can be really tough. So going to mikvah is like exciting. This is genuinely one of the most beautiful mikvahs I've ever Sometimes seen. Sometimes many women are going on the same night, so they have a beautiful waiting room. Actually, we rarely. It is so private that with 28 prep rooms, it's very rare that women have to wait. 
You are assigned to your room. The prep room is beautiful here. This one even has its own music player set you could choose and a kit with everything you might need. You have to like properly clean yourself. Your ears have to be clean. You brush your teeth. You make sure you have no makeup on. Your hair kind of in knots. Your nails need to be cut. This is a beautiful kit. That's real self-care. And more supplies just in case. And not only that, you could order more on the screen. You don't see it here. We probably still have it. Just press other. There was recently a little hype about not enough extra large robes, how people are embarrassed to order one. So we heard them cool. have some of the rooms with extra large robes. This one has a blue. How thoughtful is that? When you're done, you press I'm ready and the attendant comes. They keep it so private. Put on a robe and then you come to the mikvah itself. This mikvah was done by a French artist. They have four mikvahs, like the water itself, and wow. When a woman comes, this is her special night. The attendant brings the woman in, then she turns around. The woman in the water tells her I'm ready. She doesn't have to face her. All she's watching for is to make sure her fingers are under the water, all her hair is underwater. Then she says kosher. She says the bracha. She titles again however many times she dips. This is another room they have there. It's beautiful. I mean, you could see. And when a woman is inside, it's a special time for her to pray for whatever she may want. After she dips once, she says the blessing and covers her hair with a towel or a cloth. And coming soon to this mikvah is a salon where you could get your nails filed and cleaned beforehand and then painted after you come out. After mikvah, a woman washes her hair and puts it on the You do like this six times, and that's the end. Okay, Florida Jews versus uh, New York Jews. <laughs> Well, come on, cut out with the the music, guys. Right, Florida Jew, New York Jew. Right, New York Jews tend to be much more observant, uh, much more traditional of Judaism. <laughs> Eric Adams, mayor Based of on that New York. Answer, you can tell the society, you can tell the tribe, you can tell the town, the village the city, and the nation. So I don't want you to answer me, but I want you to contemplate. How are the children? We are watching in our country that on our college campuses, bullets are carving highways of death. We're watching anti-Semitism among young people increasing, and even in the institutions of learning, we're seeing hate across not only the nation, but the globe. We're watching cannabis and the reports that showing how it destroys brain development. We're watching fentanyl use being in parts of our city that we've never witnessed before. Overdoses are on the rise. Depression among young people are increasing. Suicidal thoughts are increasing. Young girls are watching social media take away their natural ethnic beauty and want to have plastic surgery at 10, 11, and 12 years old. TikTok is showing our children how to steal cars and how to have games to harm themselves. The same TikTok version that you can't see in the country that created the TikTok in the first place. How are the children? The children are in a state of despair at an epic proportion. But instead of us focusing on how do we duplicate the success of improving our children, we attack the yeshivas that are providing a quality education that is embracing our children. Right, that's the mayor of New York City, Haitai Curtis Yavin. 
got into a pretty funny debate here. Should the U.S. help Ukraine? I, I, I find his disappointment and his disillusionment and his balls-to-the-wall uh, discrediting of, of Putinism to be so romantic. I, again, I wish him a quick and beautiful death at the hands of our how, how do you How do you feel about Prigozhin? He's a character, uh, is he not? He's a Jew. Is he, yeah. He's a, yeah, he's a Jew. He's a character. He's got personality. You know, you know, I think I think we you know we can we can sort of maybe I'm going out on a limb here. We can kind of agree on a general thesis, which is first of all, this is a Russian civil war. This is this is between two no. centers in, in the historical uh, yeah, sure, 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 sure. I understand that you know certain like borders were drawn by Khrushchev and Clinton or whatever, but within the Russian within Ruski Mir, within the Russian world, this is a civil war between two great centers of the historic Russian world. Okay, so anyone who says civil war in my social circles is I, I understand. on the uh, I, don't they don't they tie them don't they do this thing don't they don't they do this thing in the sorry go on we paused we froze hello vlad can you hear me Let's, there we go we, i can rephrase that in a in a, in a more you know, i'm here i'm here yes yeah, 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 we're yeah good, you're, we're you're just on lousy french internet yeah everything's fine yes 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 we're good i hear you yeah sorry curtis okay I, I love curtis this isn't a civil war ukrainians and russians really are different people and ukrainians have lived within uh, a russian imperial construct and with Russians in very complex ways, while being a, both a constituent people of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, and the junior partners in in the alliance between uh, like, like the great imperial and the lower imperial, like the Scots to the English within the British imperial tradition, right? They're not the Irish who are peasant eating, potato eating peasants within within the imperial tradition. And so there uh, there, there were Ukrainian uh, Russified aristocrats, there were Ukrainian members of the uh, generals, there were Ukrainian uh, secretary generals of the Communist Party, and, and so the Ukrainian Communist Party was run by people of names like Semenyenko, right? So, uh, so, so, I mean, you have you have, of course, you know, the strange history of the USSR with nationalism, where early in the period of the USSR, of course, they make these huge efforts to encourage like Ukrainian li linguistic nationalism. They're kind of par. They're they're sort of laying claim to the the you know um, retarded heritage of of nineteenth century linguistic nationalism. The Czechs must be a nation. The Slovaks must be a nation because Slovak is a little different from Czech, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and 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 the way I, I understand. Okay, fine. All right, I get it. All right, okay. The, the way the way yeah. I understand the linguistic, you know. The Scots example is, I think, a good one because let's say that Russia was um, was arming Scotland in an attempt to break away from the UK. Now, you could go and say that Scots, not to be confused with Scottish Gaelic, which is a, pretty much a dead language, but you know there is a language called Scots. It has been kind of different from English since you know time immemorial. It, it shares ancestry with English. There was a wonderful event that happened recently on the Scots language Wikipedia because, of course, these ridiculous little peasant languages have their own. Uh, you know, Wikipedia pages, and it was discovered that the Scots Wikipedia consisted almost entirely of Wikipedia entries pseudo-translated from English by a teenager who didn't actually know Scots. He was just kind of hamming up in, in you know, in pseudo-Scots and turning no into nay, you know, and, 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 you know, this sort of indicates the kind of proper status of Scots as it enters the modern world, where, okay, they're probably really serious peasant areas, you know, where, you know, crofters in the hills right. of Makilale still speak Scots, but if you go to Edinburgh, people speak English, and they've spoken English for the last 500 years. Similarly, if you go to Kiev, then you'll find that Kiev was a Russian speaking city. You know, I saw, um, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, it was like 60, 40 recently. I mean, was, I, I saw Ar Aristovich, Aristovich, who is, I'm saying all the Russian names wrong. I just saw a clip of Aristovich talking about the language policy and saying, you know, it was more like uh, the number he gave for Kiev was more like 85, 15. I was speaking to someone about this, uh, obviously not someone necessarily on the same side of yours. And I'm like, well, they must, they must, must speak some Ukrainian in Lvov. No, apparently during you know uh, World War II, Lvov is just entirely leveled, and then it's repopulated with Muscovites uh, after the war. And so Ukrainian wait, 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 is just wait, wait, you're saying a lot of things. you're saying a lot of things which are like which are partially true and like somewhat not correct and a little bit off. And please, something please, break it down. The academics must unpack that. 
Let's unpack, unpack it. it. Let's unpack it. Okay. First of all, uh, I just wanted to get back to the uh, to the civil war thing. Within, I, I mean, like all these three states—Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine—are all successor states of Kiev and Rus, right? So mm -hmm. the, the Ukrainians uh, rightly see themselves as the older successor state to Kiev and Rus. So all of the Slav states—Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus—are successor states to that uh, ancient. Uh, civil well, war. I mean, sure, but they're also yeah. successor states of the Russian Empire, and and you know, to trace them back to the sort of ancient, you know, it's like they, they used to do this thing. It's kitsch, is what I'm saying. You know, they used to do this thing in. Um, in actually in the UK or what they now call the UK in England, where they sort of were like, well, you know, these like, you know, uh, ideas of civil rights and so forth that these pedophagging lawyers attempted to use against their rightful king in the early 17th century. These are actually time immemorial Saxon things from before the Norman conquest, right? All just complete hokum. I mean, why trace anything back to Kiev and Rus when you can tra trace it back to the empire of all the Russias? And like, it, it seems in, in, come on, who, here's, you know, a slightly deeper question is who in Kiev in, you know, the era of Alexander II is speaking Ukrainian? Like peasants bringing wagons of turnips in from the countryside, certainly well, not the Jews. No, I mean, okay, look, the uh, well, okay, I just wrote a. Uh, as it happens, I will, I will pit myself. I will, I just had the, the cover essay of the Jewish Quarterly, the Jews of Ukraine, Vashel Tov to Zelensky, but Vladislav Davidson, and I actually tell you in this in this long fifty thousand word essay that I just wrote on Ukrainian okay. Jews and Jews in Ukraine that so, so, uh, so Ukrainians uh, actually speak Yiddish. That's that, that's the uh, compromise here. <laughs> uh, it should be mandatory. Uh, yeah. So I mean, look, the the. 800 years ago, or let's say 700 years ago, when a Jew spoke a language in the lands which are now constituent of Ukraine, and we're talking about also the, the Crimean Tatar lands, the Turkic lands of the South, which were never incorporated into the Russian Empire until like 1792 or 1794, uh, or, or, or Turkish lands, Turkic lands, a Jew speaking a language other than uh, Yiddish before like the 17th, 16th century, or German, like outside of my ancestral Chernowitz, or Polish, uh, when, when it wasn't a Turkic or Yiddish tongue, and often they were speaking Turkic tongues because they were uh, Khazars or they were they were Turkic Jews or they were they were they were uh, Crimean Jews or Krimchaks or Karaites, which are all Turkish speakers. When it was not one of those Jews, it would be a Jew speaking, if you knew another language, uh, Proto-Slavic. So Proto-Slavic is the father, well, let's say the, the father language of Russian, Ukrainian, Belarus, all of it, right? I mean, like, why, why do we need to go into the history of the Eastern Slav and the Western Slavs and the Southern Slavs in order to break down uh, how old the linguistic history of Ukraine? Because is? because because this whole idea of linguistic nationalism is bogus and it has created nothing but war and chaos and death. And like for me, you know, the 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 like. You know, the idea that the Austro-Hungarian Empire needed to be broken up so that the Czechs could find their own destiny or the creation of Yugoslavia, another brilliant idea of 19th century linguistic nationalism. Like, you know, the, the, like the, this whole idea that you can't have a country consisting of people who speak different languages, especially languages as close as, as Russian and, and Ukrainian or, you know, something. Okay, but I, I think we're operating under some misconception. First of all, this, this, uh, uh, this, this is an anti-imperial uh, revolutionary process that takes place after after nine, after 2014, both the rediscovery of an old Ukrainian nationalism and the creation of a new one. That's one thing. Secondly, it's not like it's not an ethno linguistic thing at all. This is just this is all Ukrainians who are born in Ukraine who are into Ukraine. So it's actually just about geography and lines on a map. Because you know, like like I I, I sort of I, I I object to these things because basically you know I'm old. I, I was born in the year of our Lord 1970. Okay, so Curtis Yavin making fun of geography, like attachment to land. An attachment to language as though that that means nothing all right our, our strongest attachments are frequently non-rational even irrational but that's the way people are, are built we tend to be very attached to those who are connected to us genetically uh, culturally linguistically and uh, geographically so yeah people are born with natural loyalties to blood and soil now that doesn't mean that uh, you know this particular set of uh, loyalties must triumph over everybody else's set of loyalties but Curtis here seems to just be dismissing the power of geographic and linguistic loyalty 
1973. And I grew up thinking that there was such a place as the Ukraine and such a, a you know a city as Kiev and right. all of these things. And I, I grew very used to the idea that the Ukraine was a, an SSR, which meant a province of the Soviet Union, which was Russia. And right. that in Kiev, they spoke Russian. And in Odessa, you know, I think some of my ancestors hailed from Odessa with two oh, S's. We love you. you know, we love you. I'll take you to Odessa. I wrote my first book about Odessa. I'd love to. Why did, they, why did they? Why did they take out one of the S's? What was you know? Why? Why is what? Why is an English speaker? Do I have to take out an S? No, I, I'm I'm the preeminent defender of the, uh, the two S's in, in Odessa. Mm. I just got off I just got off the phone previously thirty minutes ago with my friend Tom Duvall, who was writing an essay about Odessa, and he just wanted a commentary on why there's two S's uh, in Odessa properly. By, by the way, I'm I'm only in favor of two S's. That's nothing mm. to do with Russian uh, spelling or. No, it's about the it's about the shit stuffle. It's a. Okay, look, uh, look let, again. Let me unpack all of this. Ukraine is fighting for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia's fighting for the past. Ukraine mm -hmm. wants to be independent of a Russian sphere of influence, which is normative. Does it want to be Russian independent? Wanted... Does it want to be independent of a Washington sphere of influence? Okay, so this argument that uh, Ukraine is fighting for the future and Russia is fighting for the past, uh, this is a very common type of argument used by the left, who you know believe that the trajectory they're on is just historically inevitable. It's not an argument that I find terribly strong. Uh, we don't exactly know the direction of history. What about a Brussels sphere? Yeah, no, no, like, no, it doesn't because there's like there's no third way, man. Like anyone who talks about a third way is just like. That, so I, when you're I, using the word independence, you're sort of using this kind of Orwellian term. You're basically saying you're not really saying this is an anti-imperial movement. You're saying that a bunch of you know young disco hoppers in Kiev, you know, prefer prefer the the American Empire to the Russian Empire. So may it be, but like call a spade a spade, man. Okay, look, okay, uh, it's not calling a spade a spade. This isn't about empire. This is about freedom to live your life as you want to live it. And the, the Russians live in a dictatorship. Yeah, we'd all love to live our lives as we want to live our lives. But uh, what other people want frequently conflicts with what I want. Good comment in the chat. Fighting for the future is just liberal newspeak for doing what the liberals want. And they're, they're not allowing other people to leave that dictatorship, right? So they uh, are, they, are, the, are the Ukrainians allowing people to leave the Ukraine? I mean, don't, as a, as a fighting edge male of, 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 of the Ukraine, aren't you like, uh, don't you have to sneak across the border like a Jew getting out of, of, of Germany? And like, they have a, a draft. I, I, you know, you're, you're, I think you're talking about conscription, the fact that yes. men are not allowed to leave the country. Okay, so as a, as a kind of anarchist and a, as an anarchist myself, I'm coming out of an anarchist background and a libertarian background, I do not think the state should compel people to not be able to leave the state. But in this in this case, it is, it is law and... Uh, mm the law and those men are needed to fight and uh, I don't believe that to be thrown into a meeting. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I think a better question would be not during a state of war, but during a state of peace. What is life like under the Russian government as opposed to what life would be like under the Ukrainian government and how much, let's say, the American malfeasance that Curtis may be uh, nervous about uh, penetrating itself into Ukraine, how much is that going to cause problems for the Ukrainian people going forward? So those are like the two different comparisons we can make here. So I don't know, Vlad, any thoughts okay. on that? Okay, so much contact, so much contact. Uh, I, I did want to say before that uh, the two civilizational civil war thing is off, but it is, it's not untrue that you can see it as a war of generations of post-Soviet people, in the sense that Zelensky and his people are 40 years old, and Putin and his people are 70 years old. In that sense, it's not wrong to say that this is a generational war of different uh, Soviet generations. Like, the, like, there's been sociological analysis of the average age of a member of Putin's government. It's like 63, 64. The average oligarch uh, is like a nine, is like a, of the nine, top 100 people in the regime, 94 are men, uh, or 92 are men, and the average one of them is like 62, 63, right? And Putin himself is 70 and is surrounded by people like Petrushev who are like really old, right? 72, 73. And Zelensky's 42, 43. Isolov is like 37. The average member of his cabinet's like 38. His MPs are like 35. I hang out with MPs who are like 33. The youngest MP in Zelensky's party is a young guy. Um, 
he actually promised uh, if, uh, under Ukrainian law you can do poruchniki. So if a, if a member of Ukrainian parliament comes to get you out, uh, they can they can take you out from under arrest. He promised me uh, that if wow. I ever get arrested, they can bail me out. Twenty five year old really, member of the Ukrainian parliament. That's really, that's, 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 that's an interesting. Is that kind of come from an old Russian legal tradition? It I don't seems know, very alien to Western to Western law. This idea. Can come get you out of jail and, and vouch for you and get you out of jail uh, for 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 free. Anything. Well, for I mean, like. <laughs> What are you fucking, what are you, you gonna out Jumia for free? I mean, you know, the, the, the general impression, yeah. uh, maybe this is a, an overly. Um, I'm gonna set you straight now. I'm gonna set you straight. Go ahead. The, the general impression I have of certainly the Ukraine before the war is that Ukraine. it was. Oh, Ukraine. Ukraine. Oh, Ukraine. It means the borderland, the Ukraine. I grew up, you know what? You can't, I grew up speaking English, and in English it's called the Ukraine. You can call it anything you want. You call it killing the Batman. You know, we're gonna get the, the Batman. Batman. Yeah, they, exactly. Exactly. I still say the Sudan. I'm totally fine with the Sudan, you know, and, and the, the, it's, 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 it's classic, you know, and in, in general, like my observation or very remote observation or my perception of the Ukraine before the war is that it was kind of perhaps the most corrupt place in Central Europe, North of Serbia. And, and Badad says, I want the freedom to live my life as a monarch. Unfortunately, the Slovakian people hasn't recognized my claim to the Slovakian throne. He needed NATO intervention to uphold my human rights. Amen, brother. Amen. It kind of had a general resemblance to what Russia would look like if the Yeltsin administration had continued into the present. Okay, okay, uh, you know, okay. is that overstated? Is that it, it is overstated now? And there's been tremendous changes that's taken place in the last ten years. There's been uh, there's been tremendous changes in all sorts of like uh, things, uh, like uh, you know. Uh, uh, all, all sorts of industries there's been a lot of change anti-corruption is a real thing ukraine's moved up all those rankings i'm not the one who keeps the ranking uh corruption was the way that the russians controlled the ukrainian political elite in order to control ukrainians the russians kept a system of corruption above them and they kept bribing political elites for generations of political elites uh that that is one way that one of many ways that the kremlin kept control over ukraine right uh the, the corruption was endemic until in the 90s certainly it's gotten a lot better a lot of the reporting uh you know makes it look more corrupt than it is Certainly on procurement, they got rid of corruption and procurement. They just set up a uh, kind of a stock market system for it. It's completely transparent. It, it is true that Ukraine has a lot of resources and, uh, uh, you know, cash, black and gray cash. And being this gray zone of conflict between Eastern Europe and Western Europe, between uh, Russia and, and, and Europe and uh, between uh, the future and the past, there was a lot of cash. And these oligarchs had access to a lot of cash. Much of much of the economy was in the black and the gray market, right? And so there was just cash circulating. I know I know one oligarch. His escape plan was he had a he had a plane parked uh, in um, uh, in Bolesville Airport with like thirty million dollars in gold coins in it. You know that was his final escape plan in case things were going really bad. He had a, he had a fueled plane with gold coins in it. Just a lot of cash. So gener for generations, what people from Washington D.C. completely bipartisan came to Kiev and they used it as an ATM. Mm. This is where you and I are going to uh, converge on a lot of things that we do agree on. I think it's, sure. that's good. Sure, so sure. for generations, and it was everybody. It was, it was the, the Clinton machine just ate at the trough. Uh, McCain's people, a lot of McCain's guys. I'm not going to go into the names. Mm -hmm. I don't want to bore the, the listeners. The McCain's people were, uh, McCain's people were up in there, and they were making money. He had a lot of people uh, from Manafort on down who, who had worked for him. McCain's people were totally uh, integrated into the ATM uh, structure of uh, of Ukraine. And you, so it's not it's not an accident, comrades, that both major party's standard bearers in the 2020 election were ensnared by uh, scandals having to do with Ukraine, right? Sure. I mean, you know, you know, when I when I asked my my, my dad um, knows a few things about corruption because he was the U.S.'s uh, chief economic officer in Nigeria. Now, Nigeria is, of course, very, you know, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, Nigeria is Nigeria. And, and the thing is, you know, what was interesting and specific about kind of Biden, the Biden family's appearance at the trough is right. that, you know, one of the things, you know, 
essentially in Nigeria or a place like, like Nigeria, there, there's a way that bribery is done in any of these countries when you don't want to sort of violate the forms, but also no one is really looking. So the Clinton, you know, and, and so for that, you need a fig leaf. And, you know, you can sort of defend your fig leaf and you can say, well, they're not giving money to the Clintons. They're not giving money to the Clinton Foundation. Totally separate thing. Does good works. They're not giving money to Joe Biden. They're giving money to his son. You know, and then you basically, you basically, you basically, you, you then, then you, you sort of need a route for like, but, but the idea, you know, if you basically take the idea that, you know, let's say the, um, son of the president of the son of the vice president of nigeria is on the you know the board of, of amico and you know the idea that this does not constitute a blatant bribe from amico to 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 the vice president of nigeria is like if you were the right test basically for americans taking bribes overseas is the test that our own government applies to americans who are paying bribes overseas and so if you looked at someone you're familiar with the fcpa a lot uh, uh, i mean the I mean, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Oh yes, oh, oh yes, of course. Oh yes, of course. right. And so the thing is, if you basically look at any of these structures and you imagine that the situation is re reversed, and rather than foreigners bribing Americans, which of course never happens, it's Americans bribing foreigners, which is a bad thing, usually done by evil mega corporations. Uh, you would basically very few of these arrangements would pass the laugh test. Okay, so okay, look, hmm. uh, let me let me cut you off. I agree with you. There's been tremendously nasty activity, and that a lot of people on both sides did horrific things. I, I, in fact, I've been a U.S. law enforcement uh, uh, witness about some. Okay, interesting debate there with Curtis Yavin and an academic, Vladislav David Zon. Let's have a look at uh, Chris Kavanaugh's Twitter feed right now. So he talks about this right-wing professor really sticking it to those out-of-touch academic elitists by bemoaning his lack of invitations to literary festivals. So right-wing UK professor, I find it rather amusing that uh, so far not a single literary festival has asked me to talk about the biggest selling book on British politics this year. I wonder why our institutions are hopelessly out of touch with the country that surrounds them. And uh, what's going on, Joe Rogan? But when you're you're thinking about quantum computing, I think what we're I think this is small potatoes, right? I think we're looking at literally being able to change how we interact with the universe. Like when we we were talking on our last podcast about the preponderance of evidence that there's things that operate inside of our atmosphere that are beyond imagination that are they they operate with no visible means of propulsion they move at insane speeds we don't understand what they are if we think about what quantum computing is going to be capable of that's the kind of stuff we're thinking about right, right. yeah you see quantum computers are the ultimate computers because they're computing on atoms if there are aliens in outer space and i think there are it means that they also have perfected quantum computers, and they can do calculations that are far beyond anything that we can calculate with. Like, for example, a wormhole. A wormhole, in principle, is a gateway between two distant points of space and time, which allows you to break the Einstein barrier and go faster than the speed of light. But the calculations are horrendous. It may take a quantum computer to sort through what happens when you go through a, a wormhole and wind up on the other side of the universe. And the aliens probably already have done that. Yeah, they probably, probably had centuries of experience with quantum computers because <laughs> that's the ultimate computer. You can't compute in anything smaller than an atom. And they probably already have used the quantum computers to navigate through wormholes, let's say, hypothetically. 
Okay, let's get more from this studio. Calculate things that are way beyond our ability to calculate today, like going through a wormhole or warp drive, or even the question of multiple universes. Uh, people ask the question, how come quantum computers are so powerful? It's because they compute in, in parallel universes. This is the multiverse, which, of course, Marvel Comics has discovered and the Oscars have discovered recently. But m the multiverse idea comes from quantum physics. Electrons can be two places at the same time. Now, some people have a hard time getting their head around that, but get used to it. That's why we have lasers. That's why we have transistors. That's why we have the Internet. That's why we have this conversation. Because the electrons that are in this microphone dance between universes at the, at the atomic level. Quantum computers allows us to calculate things that are way beyond our... So, Chris Kavanaugh puts some of this talk into context. So remember how people like Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel have been saying that there's been no significant innovations in technology and science for decades. And now they're smoothly pivoting to claim that they predicted, you know, all this terrible stuff coming with AI. The disease of huge financial success and being labeled a genius is that so many people think that this grants them broader insights. It also seems distasteful for many to even suggest that their success is not solely due to their unique character traits and foresight. Quantum computers can act as a fact checker. You can ask a quantum computer to remove all the garbage, remove all the nonsense in these articles, and it'll do that. So, in other words, the hardware may be a check on some of the wild statements made by software. But the problem with that is who's the arbiter of the information? Like who decides what, what's real and what's not? How does the chatbot decide? Is the chatbot ideologically biased? The chatbot doesn't. The chatbot simply the quantum spits computing it out. Does. Yeah, quantum computing can and then— it, it's going to be able to discern what's real and what's not real, even and what's propaganda? And if, if there are gradations of what is true, like it is partially true or whatever, mm -hmm. it could give you the, the, the detailed understanding of what, it, what could be misconstrued, what is partially correct, what is misleading but partially correct. You, you see what I'm saying? Yes. Right now, the chatbot just splices it together like an editor. That's all it is, an editor, not a fact-checker. And spits out. So this guy is a uh, famed futurist, best-selling author, on-air personality, and uh, theoretical physicist. Cobbled together articles that sound reasonable, but there could be dynamite inside some of these articles that were spliced into what was proposed with a quantum computer. Right. This is why Joe Rogan's show is typically goop for men. Right. It's uh, Gwyneth Paltrow level, Oprah tier level. Content. You can fact check things. Mm. And then you can say this is 90% correct. This is totally wrong. Okay, let's get a little more brilliant here. From I had a conversation Rickon. with a scientist who didn't buy into that Epstein stuff and wouldn't go to the meetings and stuff like that. And he said he was really shocked at how little money he actually donated. Interesting. Yeah, he goes, it wasn't that much money. He goes, it was really like he he was... More than that, he was bringing them to parties. Like it was a, it was an intelligence operation. Whoever was running it, whether it was uh, the Mossad or whether it was the CIA or whether it was a combination of both, mm -hmm. it was an intelligence operation. They were bringing in people and compromising them. And then when they would compromise them, they would use, you know, whatever they had on them to influence their opinions and the way they express those opinions. 
Here it says, uh, Epstein regularly visited, had card key access to, and was provided a designated office space within the program in evolutionary dynamics until 2018. So that means they, they gave him that at Harvard after he had been arrested for fucking underage girls. Had an office. Yeah. Granting him that level of access raises serious questions about the compliance with Harvard's policies and beginning in 2017 about whether or not the professor Nowak acted in deliberate circumvention of Harvard's security procedures. So, so he was arrested and did he'd already did time by then, which is crazy. It's also like at first I was like, oh, God, he was on campus with all these mm. like girls. How yeah. scary. But they were probably too old for him. So look at this here. Harvard University said Friday that convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein donated more than nine million to the university over the course of a decade and had an office on campus after his 2006 arrest. Nope. So he was arrested in 2006. And then after that, up until 2018, still had an office there. That is why old. But here's the thing. Whatever he was doing, mm -hmm. and I don't know why he was doing it, you know, and no one knows now that he's dead. But he had a lot of scientists that he was tight with. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that he did was bring these scientists to that island and he would have young girls on that island. Mm -hmm. But, like, what's the end goal there? Okay, so you've got uh, Truth Justice tweeting, the committee of 300 who controls the CIA and MI6 are running Epstein, Epstein Island to ensure compliance and control of leaders, scientists, politicians, actors, many others. They place in key positions of society to promote their ideologies and agenda. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you a message of... Uh, the Committee of 300, according to this reader's note on Twitter, is a conspiracy theory by John Coleman, claims a group founded by the British aristocracy rules the world. His book makes various false claims, including the Beatles were part of a plot to brainwash the masses and to introduce drugs to American youth. Hope, not fear. A message that I hope will galvanize us all into much-needed action. Okay, great. Let's take action. Have a look at Bing.com. See what's going on with Dennis Prager. Whoa, this is exciting. From the mind of Dennis Prager. Guys, if you subscribe to Daily Wire, right, you can enter Dennis Prager's master's program. So you can do your undergraduate degree at Prager University, and that's free, but for just $13 a month, I believe that you can subscribe to the Daily Wire and you can get 40 years of Dennis Prager's wisdom distilled into one 10-part series. Right, this is his master's program. I mean, wow. Here on Daily Wire, you can get the truth behind making a murderer. You can get Matt Walsh and his documentary, What is a Woman?, you can get the groundbreaking countercultural outlet that started it all, Daily Wire. Wow, Jordan Peterson content. And best of all, Jordan Peterson is just getting started. Did you know that he's captivated audiences, outraged millions, and inspired millions more? Hollywood is broken, guys. It's time for a clean slate. We're creating original film and fearless documentaries and new Prager's U content. This is awesome. 
the Dennis Prager Masters Program. All right, so he's going to distill 40 years of wisdom into 10, uh, approximately five-minute courses. And you can get a master's degree, right, from PragerU, but only if you join the Daily Wire. Oh, my God. What a deal. Only $13 a month. Some of the stuff you can... Mm -hmm. Google me. It's all, it's all, you suggested, yeah. you suggested, I have one question actually. You Please. suggested in um, your um, article in Tablet that uh, Shokin, the fired prosecutor, was yes. less than a prince. And uh, yes. I can certainly imagine yes. that he was less than a prince, but you infer because yes. he was less than a prince that yes. uh, he was um, not executed or not executed, not, not fired by Biden's command because he was going after Burisma. And this, the syllogism doesn't really compute to me because. Democratic Party. Let's, let's it, frequently, I'm just saying. I'm just saying this sort of, you know, raised a flag because the theory that the prosecutor is corrupt and the theory that the, the corrupt prosecutor is going after Burisma is not at all inconsistent. If you look at the way things are done, for example, in our dear, dear neighbor to the south, Mexico, it's yeah. very, very, you know, much the case that perhaps the drug czar is going after, you know, Los Zetas, Los Zetas and ignoring the Gulf Cartel. This sure. is not because he's a prince, but because the Gulf Cartel has paid him to take on the Zetas. You know, so okay. you know that 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 you know the sort of the firing of Shokin was clean. Uh, did not does not follow from the fact which I believe that uh, you report that he's not a prince. Okay. Uh, yet again, let me use this this nonsense academic talk. Let us on that. Let us on that. <laughs> Maybe you should, you should do the rest of that episode. I do good Borat. I do Zelensky. Get me drunk. I, I'm famous amongst the Ukrainian passport. Actually, the, last, the, only, the only accent that I can release, really speak is an Indian accent. After many years working in the Silicon Valley, I have developed a very good Indian accent and I'm very good at working with the Indian software professional. We okay. found a replacement for Apu, everybody. I will do Yoda for you. I can do Yoda. I can do Zelensky. And I, I can do Borat. Uh, is so it I have, true that Zelensky doesn't even, speak, doesn't even speak Ukrainian? Is that is that true? No, he's Ukrainian. It's really good. It's, it's, like, it's really good. It's like with no accent. Like, no, no, yeah, yeah. He, was a native, he was like a native Russian speaker who was more comfortable in Russian, who grew up speaking Ukrainian school. It was like, it was like much better than your high school French, but his, his Ukrainian became truly fluent over the last few years and his English became like, okay. First time, I, like when I had dinner with him the night before he became president, I, I, was, I, I was like, you're gonna have to improve your English if you're gonna become Davos man. And he didn't like that. I said this to <laughs> um, Is he still, what's his relationship to Kolomoisky now, the uh, uh, oligarch? You're asking all these questions, great questions, and I want to get back to all of it. First of all, I want to do my Zelensky impression. Oh, please. Come on, the Ukrainians. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, we'll get back to Kolomoisky, we'll get back to Zelensky, we'll get back to all these things. But one thing at a time, we're having a lot of fun, so we're going all over the place. Let's get back to Ukraine as the breadbasket of, bread of the traditional American empire. What do they call it? The, bread <laughs> the Russian empire called the breadbasket of the Washington, D.C. Yes. It's class. the breadbasket of the third world, because really, like, yes. if you look at, you know, grain exports and where they go, do you know what percentage of grain Africa imports? Of, of food? Food? Not, what percentage I'm, of African food is produced in Africa? Like 10? Like ten, maybe fifteen on a good on a, in a good year. So right. so basically, you know, you, you have this entire continent to the south yes. of this breadbasket, right? And there's just this river of calories flowing across, you know, down the Black Sea across the Med right. to they they sorry. No, I hear you, Mike. And by the Okay, so Donald Trump wouldn't say who he wants to win Russia versus Let me just Ukraine. put it a nicer way. Uh, if I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, twenty four hours. How would you settle that war in one day? I'll meet with Putin, I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this country. What do you... Can I just say one thing? 
you don't think you in terms of winning and losing? You have to get the, you have Mr. To President, get Europe. can I just follow up on that? Because that's a really important Excuse statement me, let me that just you just made up. there. Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win this war? I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying. Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done. I'll have that done in 24 hours. I'll have it done. You need the power of the presidency to do it. But you but won't say that you want Ukraine to win. You, you know what I'll say? In, I'll say this. Office. I want Europe to put up more money because they're in for 20 billion. We're in for 170, and they should an be. And they should the equalize. Okay, I guess I'm more sympathetic with uh, Donald Trump there. If he can stop the killing, stop the war, that's more important than uh, whether Ukraine. Uh, wins or loses. Okay, here's uh, Tucker Carlson. His 1991 Trinity College yearbook picture lists him as part of the Dan White Society. Uh, Tucker says that uh, he was added to this as a joke. My God, how could how could people joke about such things? No way, everybody's need those super chats so that the seats can be replenished for those birdies on the screen over there. Excellent, excellent. So you've got this kind of river river of calories. Yes. Flowing down the Black Sea through the Bosphorus and right. down, dropping, dropping like a golden rain onto Africa, where, where which has basically been sort of transformed into the human equivalent of a salmon farm. And you know, like like this, like all of this, the Black Earth. What's the Black Earth in Russian? How do you say Black Earth? Cherny something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just it's just you know being converted into like food pellets to feed the endlessly burgeoning population of the Dark Continent. And like, comment: Is this good? Is this bad? Should there be more of it or less? How do you feel about this? I am in favor of the Ukrainian state selling grain on the international market and and selling it to poor Africans who need to eat. Yes, I'm in favor of Africans eating. I mean, look, look, Ukraine is uh, tremendously fecund. I think like 30 percent of the world's uh, uh, black earth is in Ukraine. It's not a huge part of the world. It's it's at the point where I think we're about to produce like 400 million people's worth of... Can I, can I use this uh, this technical? Okay, I'm thinking about going more confessional with my uh, makeup videos. Let's talk about... Come on. ...struggle with anxiety. I don't talk about it that much because I try and just cope with it, but I've realized it's something that really needs to be discussed, especially with our generation. So I've had an anxiety since I'd say like middle school. I also have pretty bad ADHD, so that makes the anxiety worse. <laughs> I've tried almost every ADHD and anxiety medication on the planet. I took ADHD medicine for about three years, starting in my senior year of high school. And let me tell you, it really helped, but there are a lot of side effects. I don't want to go into detail about all the side effects, but it really was unpleasant. Anxiety medication never worked for me, it just made me feel extremely tired. And I've struggled with panic attacks my entire life. And let me just tell you, it is not fun. My panic attacks would get so bad that my hands would crunch up like this and I wouldn't be able to move them. There was a time where I couldn't leave my house without fully getting a terrible panic attack. I'm so sorry I should have made this longer video. Go to part two. Okay. Seems like the, the way forward. Oh, come on. I'm going to do the thing where I get ready and tell you facts about myself. So I was born and raised in New Jersey and I'm from Monmouth County, New Jersey. So kind of like central. I have four siblings. I'm the oldest. I have three sisters and a brother. My parents got divorced when I was in third grade. He got remarried and that's where I got my three other siblings. So my youngest sibling is five. So I'm 21. My sister is 19 and then my other sisters are nine, eight, and my brother's five. Growing up, I tried a lot of different sports. The only thing that really stuck was horseback riding and then dancing. Finding girlfriends was always hard for me until about high school, but in middle school, I like 
really went through it with bullying. I wanted to transfer in like sixth grade. I am a Sagittarius. I got my eyebrows laminated today, so I don't think I'm gonna touch them, but I love the way they came out. I started working when I was 12 years old. I worked um, with all of my cousins in an ice cream shop. And then after that, around like my sophomore year of high school, I started working at Hazel Boutique, which is like where I get all my clothes and these bracelets from. I've always loved posting stuff, but when I was younger, it used to get me in a lot of trouble. Sometimes it still does. When I was in like fourth or fifth grade, I was offered a contract with Ford Models and I declined because I wanted to be a professional dancer. Why my mom let me make that decision, I don't know. I've been really liking this MAC Fix Plus setting spray. My family are all animal lovers, so I have seen a lot of different pets in my house. Right now we have a few dogs, cats, we have goats, pigs, a bunny. We also have a horse. We also took care of a deer at one point. I am definitely a warm weather girl though, that's why I decided to come down to Miami for college. I'm a senior and I am majoring in marketing. I live in a house with five of my best friends. And I will probably stay in Miami after I graduate unless I go to California, but I don't know. I love traveling and I love to go out and have a good time. I don't know why I'm struggling to like come up with more facts about myself. I can't think of anything. I'm very big on you only live once and so you should probably just say yes. I've always gotten good grades. Like I usually get A's um, in all my classes my whole life, but sometimes I can be kind of a ditz. Let me know if you guys have any more questions for me though. I don't know. I don't know if I have any other fun facts. I've never gotten a nose job. You guys always ask me that. I did get a boob job though in January. Um, so that was fun. Anyways, that is me. Um, let me know if you guys have any questions. Love you. She seems sweet. Okay, I think that's going to do it. Take care. Bye-bye.